Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. Well, good morning, everybody. And uh, to begin, I'm going to ask you to uh, stand. We're going to read from Scripture. I'm going to ask the student section to send tribute up to the stage right now. Who is it? Come on, Trisha. And uh, Trisha is going to read to us from 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 15 through... Uh, chapter 4, verse 10. Okay, it should be on too. Word of the Lord. Thanks, Tricia. You've been taught the holy scriptures from childhood, and they have given you wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. I solemnly urge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who will someday judge the living and the dead when he comes to set up his kingdom. Preach the word of God. Be prepared. Whether the time is favorable or not, patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good teaching. For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching, they will follow their desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths, but you should keep a clear mind in every situation. Don't be afraid of suffering for the Lord work at telling each other the good news and fully carry out the ministry God has given you. As for me, my life has already been poured out as an offering to God. The time of my death is near. I have fought the good fight and have finished the race and I've remained faithful. And now the prize awaits me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And the prize is not just for me, but for all who eagerly look forward to his appearing. Timothy, please come as you can. Demas has deserted me because he loves the things of this life and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus has gone to Dalmatia. Thank you. Word of the Lord. Be seated. Thanks be to God for his word. All right, well today, um, we'll come back to that passage in a few, but uh, today we're moving into part two of a sermon series we launched last week called Unpacking faith, unpacking faith. And the goal of the series is to do just that. Uh, we want to unpack all the faith baggage that we acquire over life. Through your faith journey in life, uh, you acquire baggage, right? There's good baggage, like helpful, necessary baggage that helps you survive and thrive in life. There's also not so good baggage, unnecessary baggage, traumatic baggage, the sort of baggage that you carry that just feels heavy on you over time. And uh, the goal of the series is to help us all kind of figure out the difference between the two and to figure out what to do with the bad baggage when we discover it. Basically, uh, growing up, I was always like a skeptic and a doubter, had lots of questions. And I found that there's lots of material written, sermons, books, etc., to help people who are in a place of doubt move into faith. 
I found, however, there is far less material written to help people who are coming out of faith into doubt. Like how do they find their footing? How do they stay? How do they deconstruct and doubt well? That's the hope of this series. Now, uh, if you guys remember last week in week one, if you didn't hear it, you gotta go back because it's foundational. We'll be building on it throughout the series. But uh, in week one, I gave a pretty sunny and positive perspective on the potential of doubt and deconstruction. I think we're supposed to be a people who wrestle with God. I think we're supposed to uh, deconstruct and doubt because if we do that in a healthy way, it can actually be a tool of discipleship. We can draw closer in intimacy with him. But that having been said last week, today, I wanna push back on that a little bit. Because while no doubt there are some Christian communities out there that suppress doubt in very unhealthy ways, on the flip side, there are lots of Christian communities out there that romanticize it in unhealthy ways. Basically, I don't believe that you can doubt too much if you doubt in a healthy way, but I do believe you can doubt from an unhealthy place. And so to start today, I wanna call out the three most uh, popular and powerful places of deconstruction that I see people coming from that are unhealthy for you over time. Here's the three for you note takers. Let's just walk through them. Uh, first, I see a lot of people doubt from a place of, uh, of first, vindictiveness and vengeance. Deconstruct out of vindictiveness and vengeance. Basically, here's the well-worn path that we see a lot today. Uh, today, there's lots of people who will grow up in, in tr usually uh, very theologically conservative, fundamental, uh, fundamentalist bent uh, Christian communities that are oftentimes compromised by like far right politics. And as they grow up, they start to realize the unhealth there um, and how that's hurt them and how some of this stuff that they've been taught is unbiblical. So you know what they do to respond? Out of anger, or maybe they're just out of embarrassment that they were duped by this group, they swing all the way over, right past Jesus, to the opposite extreme, to like a, I don't know, a theologically progressive, totally politically compromised faith community with far left politics. And honestly, it can be pretty sad. When they end up here, they're usually angry, uh, or again, they're usually embarrassed. So the goal isn't actually to build something new and good. The goal is to tear those people down. And so that's what they do. They don't reconstruct, they demolish. It's not a reconstruction, it's demolition. So they tear their house down, they burn the wreckage, and then they go over and dance on the ashes. That's a really unhealthy place to live from. It's a really unhealthy place to doubt from but it's popular. You see it a lot today. A next unhealthy place is uh, deconstructing or doubting from a place of desire and longing. Desire and longing. Basically, uh, this is when uh, the reason why we are deconstructing is so we can justify doing whatever we wanna do. Like it's not biblical, but we wanna do it. And so, okay, we never admit it. We never actually say that. But if we're honest at like a heart level motivation, that's really what's, underneath our doubt. Uh, St. Ignatius of Loyola defined sin like this uh, once. He said, sin uh, is an unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. And far too often we don't trust that. 
far too often, we're not willing to do what it takes in terms of self-control, self-sacrifice, and self-denial that the kingdom of God calls from us. In fact, I was just with the high schoolers this past Wednesday night. We talked about this. What makes this so hard in our culture today is our culture is sowing this into us. It's sowing into us the idea that the individual, what's in you, is now the locus of authority for defining identity, purpose, meaning, morality, and life. It's this sort of anti-authoritarian mindset, right? Like if you wanna find meaning in life, if you wanna find your identity, if you wanna find your purpose, your moral compass, don't look outside of yourself, look within yourself. Don't look to like, uh, you know, traditional external authorities like God, church, religion, government, you know, whatever, traditional customs or norms that have been passed down for generations. Don't look to those. Instead, get into your feels, figure out who you are, build your identity, build your purpose, build your meaning, build your morality on your own, then brand it on social media and make sure the entire world bends itself around you. Now, again, this is, this is what's being sowed into us. So, and I'm telling you, that's a really, really unhealthy place to doubt from. Uh, the third type of unhealthy deconstruction is what I would call from a place of fear and insecurity. Fear and insecurity. And we all know this, one of the most powerful triggers for people like backing out of the faith is cultural ridicule or cultural disparagement. When all of a sudden you realize that following Jesus is actually gonna make people think you're weird or maybe even you're, you're wrong. You might get pushed out of certain uh, circles or limited in terms of your upward mobility. It might weaken some of your friendships. And, and so because of that, rather than trying to work through it, a lot of times we'll just go soft on certain truths or completely and strategically quiet on others. Now, real quick, th- throw the three back up there. One, two, three. And... Uh, The reason why I wanted to start with these three is because not only are they popular, but they are incredibly powerful. And for the record, I would suggest to you, all six drivers on the board, they are are important red flags for us to notice. Like if if you're feeling really angry or or you're feeling this intense longing in your heart or or you're feeling uh, scared, you shouldn't ignore that. Those are important emotions, but you should get underneath them. Because you see, all six of these drivers, vindictiveness, vengeance, desire, longing, fear, insecurity, none of them are supposed to be the operating system of your life. None of them are supposed to be your life filter for truth. And if you allow them to be as you settle your faith, you're just gonna swing from one place of unhealth and deconstruct into another. And I don't want that for you. Look, you don't want to be someone who allows their deepest beliefs to be driven by vindictiveness and vengeance. I promise. You know how I know that? Look at the political scene today. I mean, it has reached like a civil war level of division and dehumanization of our enemies. It's sad, really. In this tribal economy, you earn currency by uh, humiliating your adversaries. Do whatever you can to squash them. Censor them, boycott them, deplatform them, tear them down, lock them up, slander them, doesn't matter. Just make sure they feel it. A very unhealthy place to live from. Uh, you don't want to be someone 
uh, who second allows our deepest beliefs to be driven by desire and longing either. Uh, have you ever done an honest inventory on your heart? Like honest, like got in there deep to see what's in there. Because if you do, what you'll find is that it can be a very, very dark place. Maybe it's just me. Okay, so here's the Christian assessment of, the, of, the, of human beings, of the human heart. First, Christianity has an extremely optimistic perspective on us. It tells us that all of us are created in the image of God, which means we have undeniable, you know, uh, eternal worth built into us from our creation because God stamped his image on us. It also says we have tremendous potential as human beings. Literally, God wants to use us. This is how God is choosing to change the world today. He wants to use us to bring his kingdom now. How incredible, praise God. But while Christianity gives us a pretty optimistic assessment, it also gives us a realistic one. It says, if you get into the human heart, what you'll find every single time is that you are far more wicked, depraved, and sinful than you ever could have believed. There's some anger in there sometimes that's strong enough to really hurt someone. There's some lust in there sometimes that's strong enough to really hurt your family. There's some uh, you know, aggression or uh, some am unhealthy ambition in there sometimes that's strong enough to hurt your competitors, hurt your enemies, or even hurt your family, your friends, and your teammates. It's all in there. It's inside of us all. And we've got, we got to be aware of it. We've got to honestly acknowledge it. This is why desires and longing is a really, really bad place to live out of. You know, I'll say this. Uh, I, gave, I gave this uh, example to, uh, to, to the youth this past week. Um, and I, and I, th I think it's, this is helpful. So this is a picture of my uh, one-year-old son. Uh, his name's Olson. Oh, right. Okay, he's, he's precious. Um, he's our third son, so that's probably why you've never heard about him before. <laughs> Just, like, uh, he's there, though. And um, we, we, we call him, we call him the cookie monster. In fact, that's what uh, we've bought. We just bought his Halloween costume. It's going to be uh, cookie monster. He's going to be cookie monster for Halloween. And the reason why is his, his first word was Dada, of course, nobody's counting, it was Dada. Second, his second word, though, um, was cookie, cookie, he's a cookie, cookie. I kid you not, this past week, I was cooking bacon for breakfast, Lindsay brought him downstairs into the room, and when he saw me cooking bacon, I, I, it felt like it was intentional. He looked right at me, and he said, cookie. And I'm like, no, bacon. Like, that's what we're having for breakfast. Literally the other night, he had pizza on his plate. God forbid I make him eat something healthy like pizza. But he swatted the pizza off of his plate just saying, cookie, cookie, cookie. Now, I'm 35 years old. I'm his dad. So I didn't give him a cookie for breakfast. And we don't give him cookies anytime he wants cookies. Why? Because there's an understanding gap between me and him. I know what's good and what's best for him at this stage in his life far better than he ever could imagine. Again, I'm 35, he's one. Now that understanding gap between the two of us, I believe is infinitely more when it comes to our heavenly father and us. He just gets it better than we do. Sometimes when we chase after our desires, it's kind of like saying cookie, cookie, cookie. And God's like, listen, I know you love cookies, but that's not what's best for you right now. That is why what our culture is, is, is showing into us right now is so destructive. It's so destructive. 
This idea that we just gotta like get, in, get into our heart and build our own lives. We're trying to play the role of God, y'all. Nobody can play that role. Not you, not me. What's even worse is that, is that we're putting this burden on our kids. Like you tell me, they're, he's 14 years old. Okay, but, but somehow he's gotta get into his, all the feels like puberty and, and hormones and peer pressure and all those things. He's gotta get into his feels and figure out what he's gonna do for the next 70 years of his life and also define his purpose and his identity and his meaning and his morality all before he gets his driver's permit. Come on. I, I told the high schoolers this week, I, I want you to hear me say it. I'm not, try, I'm not trying to demean. I'm not trying to, to demean young people. But there is not a high schooler on the face of the planet Earth who is capable of determining their identity and their purpose and their own meaning and their own morality and then like branding it on social media and bending the whole world around it in a way that's coherent and that that encourages both individual and communal flourishing over the long haul. There is not a high schooler on the face of the planet earth that can do that. And you wanna know why? Because there's not a human on the face of the earth can do that. Not one of us. Doesn't matter if you're 15, 35, 70, anywhere in between. We were not created to do that. No, God is our creator. He's determined our purpose. He's determined our identity. He's set the, mor- uh, he's set the moral compass and where we get outside of God is when we start listening to our desires instead. Nobody can bear the weight of playing God. You'll crumble underneath it, whether you're 15 or whether you're 50. You see? Uh, Third, you don't wanna be someone either who allows their deepest beliefs to be driven by insecurity and fear. You don't wanna live in fear, do you? You know where fear always leads? Fear leads to a place of self-preservation. And self-preservation is not the cross. You know where self-preservation will drift us to? It'll drift us to, uh, to majority beliefs or it'll drift us to beliefs that are socially advantageous for us. But it rarely drifts us to cross-shaped love. So again, back to what I said earlier, put the three back up there one more time. You don't wanna live out of these. These six drivers are red flags. We should notice them. We should not ignore them, but we gotta get underneath them because none of them were meant to be the, you know, the operating system of our life. They, they can't be our compass for truth because if they are, we're just gonna swing from unhealthy to unhealthy and we've made no progress. So how might we make progress? Well, kind of in opposition to these three unhealthy places we doubt from, I wanna give you three healthy questions to ask yourself when you're doubting. Okay, kind of hard right turn in the sermon. But if, if you get in a moment where, you, where you're like in your feels and emotions are running hot and you don't know what to do, I wanna give you three head questions that help you kind of rise above the emotions and maybe give yourself a little bit of perspective in the moment as you're working through really, really difficult things. These have served me so well over the last 10 to 15 years. I've come back to them over and over and over again. They're not original to me. I have no idea who I got them from. I can't remember, some lecture at some point or something that I heard, but these, 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 are, these are good questions. And I want you to wrestle with these because I think they'll help you doubt in an appropriate way and maybe even save your faith. Here's question number one, all right? No, take your stay with me. Here's, here's question number one. We can call them clarifying questions because they bring clarity. Question number one, 
When you're struggling, you should ask yourself, is what I'm struggling with what scripture actually teaches? Question number one. Is what I'm struggling with what scripture actually teaches? Now, this is an important question to ask because a lot of times what gets us riled up ain't Jesus. Right? A lot of times we judge Jesus based on his worst abusers, which is not fair to him. We should judge Jesus based on Jesus. A lot of times we judge scripture based on a 30 second like TikTok theology video or a YouTube video that just sort of sucks all the nuance out of it. And if we get underneath scripture, what we find is that scripture is actually way more thoughtful and nuanced than we ever could have believed. So is this what scripture actually teaches? This is question number one. Now, now to, to, uh, to show you how this question works, I wanna now go back to a segment that we started last week, okay? The questions from the youths. I love the youths. Youths, I love you. I love you and you, I love you. Okay, I love you youths. And um, it's okay, in case you guys weren't here last week, leading into this series on doubt and deconstruction, we actually got on the, the gram and asked the youths to send us in questions about faith, send us in questions about doubts. They were incredible. So uh, this, we need, somebody needs to write a ditty for the questions from the youths segment that we can play it right before we answer questions from the youths. Because this is not going anywhere. I really like their questions. So I, I want to answer one of their questions right now because it helps us get at, get at this idea of, what, does scripture actually say what I think it says? So here's questions from the youths, number five of the series. Actually, two or three of y'all ask this in various ways. So this is this question. How can a God of love uh, judge people and send people to hell? How can a God of love judge people and send people to hell? Great question, by the way, great question. Now you can see the subtext underneath that. What riles us up or whoever wrote this up, what riles us up is this idea that, you know, I wanna believe in a God of love, but I don't see how like judgment and wrath and hell and all the things fit in with a God of love. So great question, let's answer that. What does scripture actually say about that? Now, I think there are two parts to this question, so I wanna handle it in two parts. The, the first part is the latter half. Does God send people to hell? My answer to that question is this, this is what I believe scripture says. No, no. God doesn't actually send people to hell. Okay, so here's what scripture says God does. Uh, God uh, created us created human beings. He created us for love. He created us in love. He desires a loving relationship with us. Now, in order for love to exist though, God also have to, had to create us with free will, the capacity to choose to love him. There's no such thing as true love if you can't choose love. If you're coerced to love, you're either a robot and robots don't really love their creators or you're a slave and slaves don't really love their masters, right? So you have to have a choice there. Which means, which means if you can choose love, which we can, you also can choose not to love. He created all of us with the capacity to love him, but also with the capacity to rebel against him. And that's what we see. We see that often. We've seen that in some of our own personal lives throughout life, haven't we? This is C.S. Lewis, super clarifying for me on like divine wrath and judgment. He writes some great stuff on this. This is what he said. He said, hell uh, is the greatest monument to human freedom. There are only two kinds of people. Those who say thy will be done to God or those who God in the end says thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it though. Now again, there's a whole lot of debate on what hell actually is. But diversity of belief here. Um, 
Some read the passages very literally and some read them very figuratively. Uh, Some people believe that basically nobody is going to end up in hell. And of course, there are some Christians who believe that everybody is going to end up there except for their little church, right? And they're excited about it, you know? So there's, there's, there's a diversity of belief here, right? But uh, here's the big point that I think scripture makes about heaven and hell. Irreducible minimum, this is it, right? Heaven is the place where the full presence of God is, which is what makes it so great. Whatever that looks like, that's what heaven is. Hell is the place where God's presence has been completely removed from. And some people choose that. Some people want that. And so, so God allows it. He has to if we have truly free will. So back to C.S. Lewis. He wrote this uh, amazing fantasy book called uh, The Great Divorce. Anybody read Great Divorce before? Okay, so a handful of you. By next week, I want every hand. No, it's a, it's a good book though. You should check it out because um, it's got some good theology in there. Um, it's helpful, at least it was for me. In this book, uh, he, he tells this, uh, he writes this scene where a bus comes from, from hell to the outskirts of heaven. It opens up and says, hey, anybody who wants to go in heaven can, go on. So here's the thing though. If you wanna go in heaven, you have to leave your sin behind. You have to leave your control behind and you have to leave your freedom behind and surrender to God. And no one gets off the bus. And oftentimes that's the truth. So, so does God send people to hell? No, I don't think so. Now to the first part of our question from the use there, okay? The first part was how does a God of love and a God of judgment exist in the same space? Again, another question. What does scripture actually teach about God? Is he a God of love and judgment? The answer to that question is yes. Scripture does teach that. In fact, I would suggest to you that if God is love, then he has to be a God of judgment. He has to be a God of justice. And if you're ever gonna be a person of love, then sometimes you're going to feel a strong impulse for judgment and justice in your life. Here's what will happen. When someone is hurting somebody that you love, you're gonna feel it. You're gonna feel a desire for justice, aren't you? You're gonna feel a desire for judgment and accountability. You want someone to make them stop so you can protect the people that you love dearly. And it's not because you hate them, although you're probably feeling pretty angry. It's because you love them, right? It's out of love that justice, judgment, and accountability is born. We're seeing this uh, come up right now in the conversation around racial justice. People are saying love, uh, or uh, excuse me, uh, justice is love applied, right? Justice is love applied. There can be no justice without a certain level of judgment. So easy for us as, as you know, kind of privileged folks to, to look around and, and say, well, you know, God, this whole wrath and judgment thing, it's not very nice. You should knock that off. But go talk to somebody who's lived their life in a marginalized community. Go talk to somebody who's been the subject of discrimination over and over and feels powerless against it. Look at communities that faced a lynching or you know, rape and pillaging, oppression over and over and over again. If you go there and you find Christians therein, here's what you'll often hear. Their only hope is in a God of justice one day. Don't you see? Love demands justice. Now you get this, you get how this all works out? All right, let's pull out of the, you know, the ground level 
to, to 30,000 feet again, okay? Because this was just an example of the larger clarifying question. Sometimes we need to ask ourselves, is what I'm struggling with what scripture actually says? Because if we go next level, and man, that was like a tidbit, like we could talk so much about the divine wrath and judgment and all what the scripture said. That was just a, a snippet of there, right? Sometimes when we go next level and we engage in the actual theological nuance that is there in the scripture, we find that we actually like scripture. We like scripture better than the other options. It makes a whole lot of sense and it, it resonates with what's in our heart. You see? Important question to ask. Now, if that question don't do it for you though, here's the second question you should ask. Second, is what I'm struggling with essential or is there room for differing opinions? Is there room for differing opinions? See, often the things people get most upset about, there's actually room for opinions on. So we shouldn't get so upset. Okay, so uh, back to the, the questions from the youth. I don't know what the ditty is. It's not that. But somebody's got to write a ditty. Back to the questions from the youths. This will help us interpret this, youths. Thank you for helping me preach. Um, somebody wrote, uh, I definitely have questions about the creation story. Definitely. Uh, so let's go there. Uh, there are three widely accepted approaches to how to reconcile uh, the conversation of, of, you know, kind of science and faith today from Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, I've listed for you here on the screen. There's the young earth creationist approach. Uh, they basically believe that God created the earth in seven literal 24-hour days uh, less than 10,000 years ago. There's the old earth creationist approach. They believe that God uh, created, but it like, took millions of years because there's millions of years between each one of the days. Uh, and they, they show you nuances in the text for how that works out that are, are pretty interesting and compelling if you've never read up on them before. And then the third is what they would call theistic evolutionists. They try to bring the best of science today with the best of, of scripture. Um, they believe that um, you know, God banged the bang, if you will, and then guided evolutionary process to where we're at today. Now, here's the deal with these three, okay? This is what you need to know. There are brilliant Bible scholars and brilliant scientists who regard Scripture as authoritative and are far more smart than anyone seen one of us that fall in each one of those camps. And they have pretty solid reasoning as to why they fall into each one of those camps. So in my humble opinion, I think that there should be room for opinion here. There should be room for disagreement. Now, I'm not the only one who has that position. Did you know? Do you know what the Roman Catholic Church's position is on Genesis 1 and 2? They have no position. That's the, that's the official position. Let me give you our official position. We have no position. Like it's, there's room for differing opinions, they basically say. Now, um, here's my controversial opinion of the day. I'm gonna step in it, y'all, but I've gotten pretty good at that, I guess. Um, so this is my controversial opinion. Uh, if you were to ask me which one of the three that, uh, that I think is uh, the least reliable or has the, the weakest argument of the three just mentioned, you can put them back up there. Uh, I personally actually think it's number one. It's the weakest argument of the three. The young earth creationist approach. And there's lots of reasons why. And you may disagree with me. And that's okay. Now, some of you are wondering, why do you feel like you got to say that? Well, uh, for one, you were all wondering anyways. 
I wonder what Tyler thinks about that, okay? Well, I'm actually not going to tell you which one I like best, all right? I'm just going to tell you that I think one. Okay, and the reason why I want you to know that I think one is the weakest is because, is because I know there are people in here right now, people who are hearing my voice, whether you're listening on podcasts, you're watching online, I know that there are people who grew up in young earth creationist camps that were not gracious, that were fundamentalist about this belief, that made you believe that if you don't believe this specific perspective on Genesis 1 and 2, then you cannot be a Christian. And you took them at their word for that. I have friends today. The deconstruction process was triggered because of that. So I want you to know that if that's you, it's not true. And you can find room for opinion on this one, at least at the same coffee table with me. It's okay to believe differently here. Sometimes it's okay to agree to disagree. This is not a center circle belief. I use this diagram often when I'm trying to think through all this. Um, To try to figure out which beliefs are are actually essential. Um, So I basically believe there are, are beliefs to die over. Those are like those essential beliefs that you, that if you don't believe them, you're not a Christian anymore. And then there are beliefs to divide over. Those are beliefs where, hey, you know, we probably shouldn't attend the same church or be in the same denomination if we disagree on that one. But we're still brothers and sisters in Christ and I love you. Let's be on mission together. Then there are beliefs to debate graciously. Those are the internal dialogue ones where we can get really heated about it, but we can still worship together, uh, uh, you know, when we come together on weekends. And then there are beliefs to delight in. That's like circle for recreational theology. Who really cares? But it's fun to think about. There's a difference between them. Not all beliefs are created equal. But where we get sideways a lot of times as Christians is we take circle fours, circle threes, or circle twos and try to stuff them in the center circle and make them circle one. That just creates unnecessary conflict, division, and departure from the faith. So uh, Chad Ragsdale is a theologian um, uh, in the Stone Campbell movement, um, which is our movement of churches. And uh, he's actually the, the academic dean, I think, at one of our schools, Ozark uh, Christian College. And uh, he wrote a book recently in which he laid out what he believed the six core essential beliefs are for uh, the Christian. I thought it was pretty good, so I'll read them to you. Uh, He argues that it is essential according to Scripture. This is what Scripture tells us is essential. He says it is essential for a Christian to, uh, one, believe that God exists. Two, believe that Jesus is Lord. Three, believe Jesus is the risen Savior. Uh, Four, be saved by grace through faith in Jesus. Five, to have new life in the Holy Spirit. And uh, six, to persevere faithfully. Now, uh, in my opinion, this is a pretty solid list. He went for it, at least. Like, you gotta respect him for that. And I don't know, if I thought about it as long as he did, maybe I might nuance some of these different, or maybe one in or one out, I don't know. But, but I think it's a pretty good list. So that leads us to question number seven, and this is our final question from the youths. One of our youths sent in this. They said, I have doubts about something our church believes. They didn't go into detail, didn't say what it was. They're just like, I, just, I don't know if I agree with the church on something. If that's you, I want you to know it's okay. It's okay. You don't need to go into crisis mode. As long as it's not one of those center circle beliefs, we can work through this together. Okay. Now, as we work through it, we have to take the biblical text seriously. We have to agree on that. 
And we have to be willing to follow Jesus wherever he feels like he's, uh, wherever we uh, uh, feel like he's leading us at the time. We have to agree on that. But again, sometimes it's okay to agree to disagree. It's okay. You don't have to walk out of faith because of it. Now that leads us to clarifying question number three. This is our uh, final one for the day. If uh, question number one don't work for you, question number two, just don't quite scratch the itch. Since question number three, you need to ask yourself, if scripture is God's truth, this is kind of an in your face one, so just bear with it. If scripture is God's truth, shouldn't it challenge me? Shouldn't it offend me? And really everyone at some level. Or like translation, you gotta ask yourself sometimes, could I be wrong? Maybe. Your wife says, yes, you could, right? But like sometimes you, you just gotta, you gotta ask yourself. If scripture represents the truth of God, Shouldn't it be a little mysterious to us? Like, it doesn't always make sense. Shouldn't God be a little smarter than me? Shouldn't it offend and convict me at some level? Like, if the Bible represents God's perfect kingdom culture, then wouldn't you expect to convict every human culture marred by sin at some level and summon us to something higher? Uh, it's interesting. Uh, several years ago, I got an opportunity to disciple this uh, young man from uh, Sudan who came from a, a Muslim family. Um, he was really into Jesus though. And like, he was like, I wanna go all in for Jesus. And, and so I was helping him kind of work that out. But he would, never, he would never take the leap. And finally I asked him, I said, what's that obstacle that you can't get over? Uh, and he said, Tyler, you don't understand. Um, if I give my life fully to Jesus as Lord, I will be shunned by my family. I will never see them again. Now, when he said that, I was like, kind of like, oh, come on, man. Like, you know, we got Catholics that get baptized at Northeast all the time. Your grandparents will get over it sooner or later, right? But he's like, no, no, you don't, you don't understand. It's way more serious than that. He went on to explain to me that in like Eastern cultures, Southern hemisphere cultures, oftentimes there's a, a stronger honor shame dynamic in their communities. And if he were to leave the faith of his family, it would be shaming his father, dishonoring his family. And so they had to shun him. He went on to say that that was what was one of the great controversies in his community about the Christian God. How could that Christian God be so merciful, so gracious, so forgiving all the time? Sometimes when you're in a seat of authority, you have to make sure that those who are dishonoring you honor you. You have to make sure they know who is actually in authority. So it was upsetting to them. God was just too gracious sometimes. Now, of course, to us in the West, we're like, that's a cultural blind spot, at least when it comes to scripture, right? Because, because scripture teaches about God's lavish grace, clearly. So they have to wrap their arms around that. But I wonder if we were to ask people from the East uh, or to ask people from the South what they think about the modern West and our cultural blind spots, I wonder what they would say about us. You better believe we have them. You know, uh, I was talking to one of my close friends once and uh, he's not religious. Uh, but he, he said this to me. He was like, you know, Tyler, I just couldn't believe in a God who uh, restricts sex, who puts boundaries on sex. Now, when he said that to me, I was like, okay, first, that's a bad take because literally every civilized society, every world religion puts boundaries on sex. It's just a matter of where you put them and on what authority do you put them where you put them, right? Everybody has boundaries. 
But that's not what frustrated me, or even like what surprised me about his question. Here's what surprised me. It was that he thought he could threaten God. I thought to myself, like, at what point have we got to a place to where we think we can dictate terms to God if he's out there? Maybe sometimes we just need to rest with what a text says, realize we might not like it, and then surrender to Jesus anyways. This is, in fact, what Jesus calls us to do. Matthew 16, 24, he says, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. What does take up your cross mean? It means self-sacrifice for others. That's what the cross was. So Jesus says, look, if you want to follow me, you have to self-sacrifice for others, and you have to self-deny for the way of Jesus. Uh, Said a bit differently, I believe that the way of Jesus is, uh, is never deny God even if that means denying yourself. But the way of our age is never deny yourself, even if that means denying God. And I wonder, I wonder, this is just food for thought this week, I wonder where in your faith does it actually counter your desires, counter your culture, counter your emotions, and call you to surrender and self-deny, even when it's uncomfortable? It should be there if you're following Jesus. He promised us that it would be. All right, let's review real quick. Can you put the three clarifying questions up there for all of our reviewers and then, and then we'll, we'll transition to a time of communion here. Quick review. When emotions run hot, you're uncertain what to do. You got it, the, the three questions. Maybe, I'll just read them to you. At one, ask yourself, one, is what I'm struggling with what scripture actually teaches? Two, is what I'm struggling with uh, essential or is there room for differing opinions? And, uh, and three, if scripture represents God's truth, shouldn't it offend or challenge everyone at some level? I think this will help you get some perspective. All right, now I wanna close by going back to the passage that we opened with. Because if you notice the passage at the top of the day, it was both epic and tragic. Here's what makes it tragic. In 2 Timothy 4.10, did you see what Paul says to Timothy about their dear friend Demas? Paul writes, Demas has deserted me because he loves the things of this life and has gone back to Thessalonica. Now, Demas is actually mentioned two other times in scripture, once in Colossians, once in Philemon. He's mentioned as a co-laborer of Paul's and yet something has happened along the way where here at the end of Paul's life, Demas is gone. He's left the faith. He's gone back to Thessalonica. He's wiped his hands clean of Paul. We're not really sure of why, but there are two theories based on the Greek text and based on the early church fathers. Theory number one is that Demas didn't like the poverty that the apostleship required, that he had family connections of some sort in Thessalonica where he could make a lot more money. And so he left Paul for affluence and wealth. The other theory, and this could be true at the same time, is that Paul was in fact at the end of his life. He was facing martyrdom. And Demas knew that if Paul gets killed, who's next in line? His inner circle. And he wasn't ready to suffer like that for Jesus. So he left. Either way though, he left. And when we look his betrayal of the word, his desire for the world, and his fear of suffering stands in such stark contrast to Paul's words to his apprentice, Timothy, about his preaching. So I wanna challenge you today not to be a Demas, 
but instead to hear Paul's words to Timothy. He says, I solemnly urge you, Timothy, in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who will someday judge the living and the dead when he comes to set up his kingdom, preach the word of God. Be prepared, whether the time is favorable or not. Patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good teaching. For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They'll reject the truth and chase after myths, but you should keep a clear mind, Timothy, in every situation. Don't be afraid of suffering for the Lord. Work at telling others the good news and fully carry out the ministry God has given you. To anyone deconstructing today, that's my word to you. You see, I always get a little bit frustrated because the people who are deconstructing, like, like they're so quick and courageous to call out injustice. They're honest with God. They're fearless in the face of pushback. And yet, while I admire that, what frustrates me is that oftentimes once they get through that, they say, and so because of that tension I'm dealing with, so because of that, there's no hope left in Jesus for me and I gotta leave. To which I always think to myself, no, you don't. You don't have to leave. You can stay because standing before me and you is the very embodiment of hope that the church needs right now. For those who call out corrupt Christianity, I want you to know you're a living embodiment of God's prophetic voice. For those of you searching your desires and scripture to see how they interact, you're the living embodiment of the kind of hunger for truth the church needs. For those of you willing to bear your questions and share your doubts raw and real with God, you're the living embodiment of the sort of wrestling faith God calls us to in scripture. And for those of you who are courageous enough to stare persecution, scorn, personal sacrifice, and relational loss right square in the face and believe anyways, Knowing how unpopular it will be, you are a living embodiment of the 2,000 years of saints that have come before you who were willing to die to pass down the truth in the way of the risen Jesus. So don't tell me there's no hope. You're the hope. Don't tell me you can't stay because wherever you go, their truth faith is. And don't tell me there's no future in the American church. In Jesus' name, you are that future. So one more time, Paul's words, preach the word, correct rebuke and encourage your people patiently. Keep a clear mind, never be afraid of suffering for the Lord, work at telling others and carry out the ministry that God has given you. We need you, we love you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's remember Jesus in communion.